Hi folks, just a little Ohio Mysteries business before we get started. In the last episode we did in our Unresolved series, that was the one featuring the case of Roderick Clemens, we had a technical glitch we still can't understand. When the episode arrived on your podcast app, it was missing the audio segments of the two Akron police detectives on the case. So we redid that episode and uploaded a new version that same day and labeled it fixed in the title so you could see it was new. I'm still getting occasional emails from people with the bad file. I'm not that technically knowledgeable, but I think this may have something to do with caching and that the original version is still somehow on your device and defaulting to it when you try to play it. I would suggest either removing that episode and downloading it again, or go to our website, ohiomysteries.com. If you look under the episode tab, you can find that episode, follow the link to the direct audio of it, and hopefully it will play okay from there. Anyway, so sorry about that. We still don't know what happened, but thankfully it's not a common occurrence. Now, on with the show. to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Recently, we did an episode on a triple homicide in Cincinnati. A mom, dad, and a little girl wiped out by a cold-blooded killer during a home invasion in 1966. The murder of the Brickas had some promising suspects, but was never solved. Well, two years after that, another case. This time, a mom, dad, and daughter living in Milan, Ohio. And again, a case with no answers decades later. Tonight's episode is about that story, the killing of the Cassidys. Milan is a tiny farm town in Erie County, sitting off State Route 13 in northwest Ohio, a rural, quiet, all-American setting that would be worthy of a Norman Rockwell painting. It's home to just 1,300 people, but I'm betting a lot of our listeners know this town, and not just because many of you no doubt pass it every time you go to Cedar Point. This village gave birth to one of the most influential human beings in the history of our planet, Thomas Edison, inventor of the light bulb and the electric industry, the movie player, the phonograph. He's even the guy who improved Alexander Graham Bell's primitive telephone so it could actually be used. So yeah, if you use lights in your home, go to movies, play records, or use telephones, 
It all traces back to a crying newborn baby in a house in Milan, Ohio. But more than a century later, in the spring of 1968, Milan was making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Let's go back to April 1st of that year. April Fool's Day, if you're into that sort of thing. The Cassidy family lived in a large two-story white frame home in Milan Township, a little north of the center village and near the Ohio Turnpike. They'd been there for 10 years, but had spent a lifetime in the area. The father, William Cassidy, was 42 years old, born in Detroit, but raised next door to Milan in the city of Huron, right along the Lake Erie shore. He was a construction worker, and in the spring of 1968, his job kept him busy in Illyria. His wife, Anne, was 37, a homemaker and mother to their two children. Their youngest was Patty, a 12-year-old with a big smile and lots of freckles. And they had a 17-year-old son, Michael. Michael was a senior at Milan High School, where he was a football player and track star. He also worked. He had a part job cleaning a bar in Huron, about six miles away. And because this job needed done after patrons left, Michael worked in the early morning hours, even on school nights. April the 1st was a Monday, and Michael finished cleaning the bar and returned home at four in the morning. Michael found his sister, Patty, first. She was in her second-floor bedroom, laying across her bed, bloody and unconscious. She had been bludgeoned about her head and neck. Michael then went to his parents' bedroom, which was adjacent to Patty's, and there he found them, in bed. Apparently, William and Anne hadn't even been able to react to the violence that had entered their home. They both were shot in the head at point-blank range with a shotgun. William was also shot in the chest. Michael ran from his home to his girlfriend's house, and there he called the Erie County Sheriff. First responders entered the house to find Anne and Patty were still alive. Anne, only briefly. She was taken to Fisher Titus Memorial Hospital in Norwalk and died soon after arriving. Patty was taken to Illyria Memorial Hospital, where she underwent neurosurgery for several hours. She held on in critical condition for a while. A sheriff's deputy stood guard outside her hospital room. After all, she was the only witness to what had happened, and they were hoping for answers after her recovery. Doctors gave her a 50-50 chance of surviving. On Wednesday, William and Anne were laid to rest at Scott Union Cemetery in Huron. Patty died the next day, never having uttered a word. She was buried with her parents, all three names etched into a single stone. Erie County Coroner Joseph Buter estimated the Cassidys had been attacked between 3 and 3.30 a.m. Monday, That meant the killer may have been in the house as little as a half hour before Michael returned home from work. Deputies recovered a single shell casing from a 12-gauge shotgun. It was in the kitchen of the home, either discarded or forgotten. They didn't have a weapon, 
but they did learn the family had kept a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun on an enclosed porch at the house, and that shotgun was missing. Now, deputies found part of a plastic gun stock beside Patty's bed. They theorized that the object used to bludgeon her was the same gun used to kill her parents. The family also had a pet dog. The mutt was found paralyzed in its hind quarters and appeared to have suffered a blow on the back. Neighbors said it was romping around okay the day before, leading to the belief the killer had injured it as well. The motive for this crime stumped investigators. There was no sign of forced entry into the home, but then again, the Cassidys routinely left the house unlocked. There was no sign of a struggle. It seemed like whoever killed the family knew exactly where to find them and worked so efficiently they couldn't offer a defense. And Sheriff Al Hess ruled out burglary. Except for the missing gun, it didn't appear anything else was taken. After a few days, the state's crime lab was called in to help. And forensic experts walked away with several items, hoping to find a clue. The sheriff cryptically said they had taken one item that could be very helpful, but declined to elaborate on what that item was. Not surprisingly, the son, Michael, became the first serious suspect. But police said he was very cooperative, agreed to take a polygraph, which he passed, and there was no evidence to tie him to the crime. Erie County Prosecutor George Steineman went as far as to say Michael's answers to questions tended to clear him of any suspicion in the case. So, investigators turned to other possible theories, a leading one being that since the home wasn't far from the Ohio Turnpike and the rail lines, maybe a drifter had broken into the house. But again, what would the drifter's motive be since there hadn't been a robbery? There was something at the crime scene, however, that chilled everyone who learned of it. On the coffee table in the living room of the home was the Truman Capote book, In Cold Blood. The book, which was a recent release at the time, told the story of the 1959 murder of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas, killed by paroled convicts who thought the family had a safe full of money, and when there was no safe, they killed the entire family. Since the clutters included the mom, the dad, a teenage daughter, and a teenage son, it was incredibly eerie that if Michael had been home and killed, the Cassidy case would have so closely resembled that clutter family's annihilation. I have to say, however, that news reports were vague in their language about this book. Some made it sound as if the book was out of place as if maybe it belonged to someone other than the family and left behind. Other reports simply mentioned it existed, with no indication if investigators were bringing it up simply because they found it ironic for being there. Anyway, this case was going cold fast. Police were not getting any helpful leads, although clearly a lot of eyes were still cast toward Michael. 
A month after the murders, Michael was called to a court hearing on the case, but by this time he had gotten himself a couple of attorneys, George Howells and Leonard Catry, and they advised him to stop talking. The prosecutor asked the court to order Michael to give testimony, but the attorneys told Judge James McChrystal they thought the state was trying to lay a foundation for prosecuting Michael and that he was not required to participate in that. The judge agreed and upheld Michael's right not to answer any questions. And best I can tell from my research, Michael never spoke about what happened that night again, not to investigators and not publicly as those anniversary milestones came and went. Not much has been written about this case over the years, and there have been really very few details about the family. But I did find comments on some website forums from people who knew the family, and I thought I'd share them. One described William Cassidy as a big drinker, even an alcoholic, who threw famous temper tantrums after losing bumper pool games at a tavern called the Naughty Pine. I only bring it up because I thought it spoke to a possible motive. Maybe William picked a fight with the wrong guy. Another comment was about Anne, from a neighbor who said she had coffee with his mom every week, same day, same time, and was greatly missed. I wish I'd found more about Patty, but if anyone wrote about her, it wasn't in any of the resources available to me. I also saw a more recent interview with a neighbor of the Cassidys who, all these decades later, was still confident that Michael had something to do with it. Michael is still alive and living out of state. I have no doubt he's lived with that suspicion his entire life. That's it for a 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here next week for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.